1: host, Alejandro Rojas, and I have on the line Jason McClellan. Hello, Jason.
0: Hello, Alejandro.
1: I said your name with that. Uh, what would the native accent for your name be? McClellan. McClellan of the clan McClellan. Would it be like that?
2: Uh, I suppose it would, Alejandro. I suppose huh. it would.
1: Do you have any family from the old country that say it like that?
2: From the old country? Yeah. <laughs> Probably, not that I know of.
1: Okay, well, let's get into it. Today, we have a great guest. We've got uh, Scott Ramsey. And essentially, when we did this story about the FBI recently, we got a little feedback. Hey, come on, I showed in my book, or at least Frank Warren, who helped write the book, that uh, Silas Newton was not hoaxing when it came to uh, talking about the UFO crashes, because We had this memo that the FBI released, and we talked about how it was based off of a hoax. And uh, I said, okay, prove it. So he sent me Scott Ramsey's book. Now, Scott Ramsey I've had on the show a couple times before. He's a really cool guy. I've known him for many, many years. Um, And he's been researching this uh, Aztec UFO crash for like 20 years. And it, it all comes from this Silas Newton stuff. So, uh, they wanted to talk about how he has shown that maybe Silas Newton didn't think uh, what he was doing was a hoax. So, uh, I looked at the book, and there is some really interesting research. He's done some great investigation. Um, you know, I'm going to talk to Ramsey about how FBI files still show this guy was a con man, but maybe it was a crying wolf type of situation where he's. he's uh, Ran a lot of cons, but this one he actually thought was the a, a real deal. Either way, Ramsey's found some uh, first-hand witnesses to this alleged UFO crash with some aliens and stuff. So we'll talk to Ramsey about that. He's a cool guy. Either way, he's a lot of fun to talk to. So uh, this will be very fun and enlightening. However, prior to that, let uh, Jason and I talk about... The stories of the week, of course, everybody can hear on the on the show with Jason and Maureen. Spacing out, Uh, they can go see all of the news of the week and go to our website. But uh, Jason, why don't you tell us what you think was uh, the best story of last week?
2: The best story? Hmm. Well, that's an interesting way to put it, Alejandro. I, I don't know if I'll do the best, but uh, you know I'm going to cheat a little this week, and I'm going to do a story we just posted today. You, ah. can, yell, you can yell at me later about that, but okay. I'm intrigued by this story. So there's a man in uh, Perth, which is in Western Australia, and he claims to have photographed and, and continues to photograph UFOs in the sky hundreds of ufo photos these photos showing ufos he takes thousands and thousands of photos of the sky he photographs clouds and he started doing this in november of 2012 when he got a new camera and he wanted to test out his new his his new camera so he set it up and started taking uh... several pictures or thousands of pictures of clouds and he would take these um, in very rapid succession then later he would upload the photos to his computer look over the photos, and zoom in and find these anomalies in the photos. And he claims to have discovered several UFOs of varying shapes, from squares to rectangles and so on. The photos he posts on his uh, his website for everybody to see, his website is wispyclouds.net, and on this website he posts various theories for what these things are. But uh, it, it's interesting, and, and I think, as we see with a lot of UFO photos, um, there could be something to these photos. Um, some could be craft, but other things could simply be things like bugs or birds, or even uh, specks of dust on the lens can produce some of these artifacts, which are interesting. And, again, he doesn't see these with the naked eye. He only sees what, sees them when he looks at the images on the computer and does incredible zoom-ins to look at these tiny dots, and that creates these interesting shapes. Now, I want to point out this guy is a a teacher. He reportedly has a PhD in biochemistry, Um, so take that for what it's worth. But uh, he's got some interesting theories, and seems like he is very much into uh, UFO research on his website. He's got Various ads posted for different things like this, like Stephen Greer's serious documentary and things like that. But I thought it was interesting with all of his photos that he takes. And again, since I think uh, November, he's taken 20,000 photos of the sky and gone through and found these UFOs in in, uh, some of his photos. So uh, it's pretty interesting, Alejandro.
1: Yes, it sounds like it. You've kind of caught me at a disadvantage because I haven't been able to catch up with that story yet this morning.
2: That was my plan all along. Oh, you little
1: – but uh, yeah, it sounds interesting. So you're you're intrigued by these photos.
2: I am intrigued by the photos. I'm a, I'm a fan of UFO photos. Um, again, a, a lot of times with photos like these where the photographer doesn't see it, the object at the time and then sees it when they're reviewing later – it's a good indicator that there's really not much to it. However, you know, if there's a craft that's very high in the sky that you would only be able to see a dot or not see at all with the naked eye, certainly it's a possibility that there could be some some craft of unknown origin in these photos that he's capturing. But at the same time, this type of thing does happen in photographs a lot with number one, digital cameras and just the way digital cameras work with the pixels and trying to create something you know sometimes something is created out of nothing when you zoom in to a photo an extreme level of zoom you're going to get some strange image artifacts that the mind will interpret in ways that uh, it it probably shouldn't you know inventing things that aren't really there but who knows what these things are there some of them are pretty interesting you can see and again because it's zoomed in so much and and the digital imaging is, is doing its thing uh, I think creates a lot of shapes that aren't necessarily the true form of whatever this object is but there's things that look like saucer-shaped craft um, and some that look like and again, these these are taken in rapid succession so you can sort of get, a, get an idea of some of the movement these craft are taking so it, it's kind of interesting and he's seeing a lot of them which, you know, I don't know I haven't attempted this myself, setting up a camera and taking 20,000 photos of the sky, so I don't know how common this is, but I think they're interesting, and people should go to his website and take a look.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, one thing I've noticed, too, and I think that, I, well, one thing I keep in mind with taking photos is that the camera, it's not as good as your eye. I mean, it's difficult to capture uh, things on camera uh, as compared to the eye, especially things that are smaller and further out. Um, and so especially like you said when you find something in your picture that you didn't really take note of when you're taking the picture it's usually cuz it was something mundane like a like a bug or or a bird but um something just I keep in mind with taking these pictures but you never know we'll have to see uh, I'll have to take a closer look Well cool thanks for enlightening us on that story big J
2: Absolutely and I can't wait to hear what you think of the photos they're kind of fun
1: Yeah So I'm going to talk about – because I think people are dying to hear, and I know people would be uh, a little upset because I noticed they were a little uh, worried that you guys didn't talk about um, the serious documentary on Spacing Out, although you're going to do that next week.
2: That's coming up this week on Spacing
1: Out. This week, so yeah, so they'll be able to check that out on Friday. You guys just held it to uh, give some suspense. (laughs) <laughs> that that was
2: exactly the plan, Alejandro. Exactly.
1: Probably to get more feedback and stuff.
2: And so <laughs> uh, we'll definitely be covering it this week on Spacing Out. But uh, cool. so yes, I'm excited. Are you? Is that what you're going to talk about right now? Yeah, definitely. All right.
1: Yeah, I think it got to since we we also posted that story last week. At that's been a little controversial, and and Lee Spiegel, of course, posted one too. And that there's kind of two parts. I'll talk about the film itself, uh, regardless of the little. Creature thing that they found first. The film itself really is um, nothing new to me because I've been familiar to, with, uh, or probably you, I've been familiar with uh, Dr. Greer's work for a long, long time. Um, so it was, it's something I think it was well produced. I liked Thomas Jane uh, doing the voiceover, he was very dramatic and deep, kind of like in the Punisher movie. Uh, but I thought it was kind of interesting if this is a a movie more for the general public that it started with, you know, them out in the desert meditating and, you know, feeling like they're calling in UFOs and aliens. And then when they showed the pictures or the video, you know, it was kind of short when they showed the videos and there was no like – Expert analysis of these videos because if these videos are really of something anomalous, you know, you'd think you'd want to get some sort of analysis done on those videos. So, and the other aspect, even though it was very metaphysical in this way, then it gets into kind of a darker about how all of these people in energy are getting or with these free energy devices are getting killed, like assassinated by the government or something. So, then it goes from this. Metaphysical to this dark area, and then end with some of the really good witness testimony that he got, you know, way back when for the first uh disclosure project thing. So that was uh, kind of an interesting stance to take. I think it might be difficult for the mainstream to accept kind of the metaphysical parts and maybe even the assassination parts, where uh, a lot of people will find that interesting, but it might have been better. You know, if you use, like, typical uh, speech writing, you have to build the credibility first before you bring in the more controversial stuff. And that might have been a better tactic for them. Otherwise, you know, it's a question, and hopefully we're going to get an interview with uh, Dr. Greer later today uh, on Skype. But uh, as far as the little creature... The scientist did say it was human. Now, he qualifies that with some scientific jargon that is over my head because I'm not a, a scientist. And so I emailed him to clarify you that he believes this thing to be human. And he, you know, I didn't post up my whole conversation with him. But he is very, to him, the evidence uh, is sufficient to demonstrate that this thing is human. He is no longer pursuing that question because it is no longer a question for him. And in the quote I put in our story online, he said, if anybody can show that this sort of DNA is any non-terrestrial, he'd be willing to to hear it. But of course, he's a good scientist, an open-minded scientist, so he's going to hear any kind of evidence there is out there. But it's human, and he was convinced it's human. I talked with the producer to say, okay, if Dr. Nolan felt this thing was human, why did you call it a a creature of unknown origins? And he seems to have a different perspective on the science, and I think it almost seems like a lot of people, some people are saying it was kind of maliciousness just for marketing purposes. I think maybe there's at least, especially on this the producer's part, J.D., kind of maybe a misunderstanding or a breakdown in communication where he seems to really think that that question is still open as far as it being extraterrestrial. So I don't know. As far as if people want to see it or go get it, um, if you're familiar with Dr. Greer's stuff, it might not be as exciting for you. Some people felt let down, but I don't know. What do you, What's your uh, perspective?
2: My perspective is the right perspective. I'm just kidding, Alejandro. Not at all. Now, what I think about this thing is I have – like a lot of people, I have mixed feelings about this. But uh, going into the film, I, I think I expected a lot more than what was delivered and not more in in terms of substance, I guess, but in, in terms of what their goal was, what they advertised their goal was with this film and then what the film delivered Um, In my opinion, the film came across more as a a marketing tool uh, and kind of a recruiting video, it seemed, you know, really hyping up the the efforts of of what uh, Greer and his organization do and, uh, you know, highlighting that they have people all over the world who participate in the the CE5 process and uh, I found the movie very jumpy and there was – A lot of good information in there um, with regards to UFOs and extraterrestrial life, but as people have pointed out, it really wasn't any new information. It was a lot of rehashing stuff from the Disclosure Project, um, and that stuff was kind of glazed over. It was flashed very quickly in front of people, and for those watching the film for the watching the film and, and seeing this information for the first time or not being familiar with the disclosure project and some of the testimony that's come out from it, uh they would have no idea what was being shown in this film because it was it was presented very quickly and sort of a, a quick montage to show all these people that have talked about UFOs, but that's the important content and yes, it's already been presented before, so there wasn't a need to rehash it. But if their point with this film was to approach the mainstream audience and and inform people, it wasn't gone about in the right way. It was kind of preaching to the choir in a sense, but at the same time, it was very sporadic, and I don't know, I had a difficult time following the film because it jumped from topic to topic, and there was this, as you pointed out, this huge overtone of... Government conspiracy and 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 threats on life and things like that, the, the danger involved in all, of, with all the people who have investigated this, and just very confused with with the whole motive and and the points they were trying to get across. It didn't seem to, I mean, it, it didn't work at all for me. And certainly, thinking about it in terms of somebody who was mildly interested in the subject or wanted to learn more about the subject. Or from the point, uh, point of view of, of trying to generate interest in the mainstream public to take the subject seriously, I didn't see anything that would achieve that goal.
1: Yeah, and i got to say, and I know people will kind of – they've been talking about it um, and may not agree. But there were two things – I I do agree it did come across more as kind of a recruiting film. And then there were two th- made kind of big disappointments for me that I thought were hyped up unduly – First, that we were going to have some sort of new information, especially around free energy devices when there wasn't anything new, and so that was a disappointment. And then, of course, with this little creature thing, I was disappointed that um, there wasn't any anything new. I mean, the scientist comes out and says it's human. Sure, he has a couple caveats to that, but that's because he's a good scientist. And in any work, a scientist is going to say, well, here are the things we still have to look into here are the possible uh, things we've messed up that we, you know, there's always that part to any type of science, even though, you know, I clarified with him, it's, it's human. And I guess to me, it's kind of, I'm satisfied for me, it was going to, I was looking for something incredible because I was giving Greer the benefit of the doubt. This thing looks like it's a skeleton from a um, a fetus, in my opinion, So what's going to convince me it's otherwise? And all they did was confirm that to me. And you know, I got to say, and some people will disagree, it's surprising to me that people can look at some anomalous, this weird-looking skeleton that doesn't look very much different than a tiny human skeleton. You know, first glance, it looks like this tiny human skeleton with a crushed skull, Why people would automatically jump to this extraterrestrial answer, it really baffles me. And then when a scientist comes out and says it's human, and then when we write our story showing that another scientist in Barcelona had said it was a fetus skeleton, how people can hold on. It's it's weird to me. To me, it feels like people want to find extraterrestrial evidence so bad that they look for it anywhere, kind of like the whole – Giorgio Tuchelis. Yeah,
2: it's phenomenal. the ancient alien syndrome, absolutely. I just don't get that. If something is strange, it's automatically extraterrestrial.
1: Yeah, it, these weird coyotes, because, I mean, we live in the southwest, we see these coyotes, I see the mangy coyotes, but then once in a while, a story in the news, oh, it's a chupacabra. No, it's a mangy coyote, you yeah. know, it, it's, um that just is so strange to me.
2: I mean, don't get me wrong, I I want to see an extraterrestrial and you know find find evidence i'm all for evidence of ufos and extraterrestrials but it comes at the price of you know fabricating things or 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 misrepresenting things or just forcing things to be what i want them to be that that does nobody anybody that does nobody any good so right right
1: right okay well that that's a story otherwise i guess i should mention that um uh, as for the citizen hearing going on right now, Lee Spiegel is uh, live blogging that uh, on the Huffington Post, but um, do you want to say anything about that?
2: You know, from what I've seen so far, I'm impressed with how it's going. I think the uh, the panel of former congresspeople are handling it surprisingly well. Their questions seem to be intelligent. They seem to be paying attention, and uh, yeah, so far I think things are going as well as they could.
1: Yeah, I just uh we just heard from Leon. He told us the same thing. That yeah, the the committee members seem like really nice people and uh that they're asking some great questions. So we'll look forward to that. All right, thank you, Jason. My pleasure. Okay, so let's go ahead and talk to Mr. Scott Ramsey about the Aztec UFO crash. Okay, I am very happy to have on the phone Scott Ramsey. Uh, one of the team members who brought us the recent book, The Aztec Incident Recovery at Heart Canyon. And Scott, you and your wife Suzanne have worked together on doing 20 years of research on this Aztec UFO case.
0: Um, actually, this is uh, this October will be our 27th year, and oh. she has been helping me hand-in-hand hand for over 10
1: Holy cow, 27 years. That's like the majority of your life.
0: It, it is it's yeah, it is. It's more than half my life, that's right.
1: Well, one of the reasons now, I've had you on a couple times, uh obviously I I'm pretty intrigued by your work and and uh you know, I think we met at a MUFON on probably like 10 years ago and and it was where I first heard about you and uh what you were researching and I thought it was interesting that uh of course that you were finding stuff because uh, a lot of people had kind of felt the Aztec case was pretty much a cold case uh, and the level of research and that's why I want to talk again because the book is out and the level, I mean you're so very thorough on all of the points that you go into here that That's what I think makes this book really important, if nothing else, an exercise on how to do thorough investigation, but also, <laughs> as far as the Aztec case goes, I think you've got um, more evidence for this crash than a lot of the crashes out there that people refer well, to. thank you.
0: That's nice of you to say. It, it's uh, just a matter of uh, really cultivating a lot of leads over the years and, and pitching out the... Uh, the old uh, wives tale and going after Mm -hmm. the the facts in the case as best we could and there's been a lot of people that have worked on the book Uh, there's you know four names on the cover Mm -hmm. myself my wife suzanne uh, dr frank thayer from the new mexico university and uh, frank warren from the ufo chronicles but there's been a cast of hundreds i mean literally that have helped on the book uh aviation expert mike price uh, he and i have traveled back and forth the the country over five or six years, going through all the Scully archives. So it's 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 been a lot of people put their effort into it. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, it's come to be somewhat controversial with the UFO research community, and we'll get into that. Um, however, let's start off, if you can tell us in a nutshell, how it came about that uh, you and the rest of the world kind of knew about this possible UFO crash in Aztec. New Mexico.
0: Well, the the first book, the first hard-backed UFO flying saucer book that ever came out was about the Aztec case. And uh, that came out September 1950, September 17th, I believe it was released. And that was written by uh, a very famous writer, uh, Frank Scully. And he wrote for various magazines, variety, one of the ones he wrote for. And he talked about uh, the fact that he was approached by scientists from within the government that had worked on top-shelf top projects during World War II, and they confided in him in early 1950 that this flying saucer incident happened about 11 and a half to 12 miles outside the town of Aztec, New Mexico. Which, by the way, for the folks listening, Aztec, uh, New Mexico is up in the Four Corners region of New Mexico, uh kind of right literally if you're standing at what we call the crash site you're literally looking at the mountains in Colorado it's just right on the border uh so that's how the world first heard about it and uh frank scully's book the first printing did over 64,000 copies it was a it was an instant uh, success and it went along very well till 1952 when the book started taking some criticism from uh, what I would call jealous people that tried to buy the story from Scully. Mm-hmm. And uh, quite uh, frankly, the, the book, uh, the whole Aztec uh, story kind of fell apart at that point, and it wasn't really reactivated till the mid-'80s when uh, Bill Steinman and Wendell Stevens wrote the book UFO Crash at Aztec that came out. Only 1,000 books were printed, and you can still buy those on Amazon used, and it's a a good book. It has a lot of good information in it. And then Bill Steinman was criticized in the book by some for not using people's names. He used initials like VA for Valentine Archuleta and uh, uh, BL for Benson Leaper, uh, different ranchers that back in the 80s didn't want to go on record. And uh, so he took some slack for that. And I stumbled on the story in October of 87 while I was out in Farmington on a business trip and heard some people talking about that they were going to go out that weekend and look for a place to hunt mule deer. And the other gentleman said, where? And he said, oh, probably out Hard Canyon Road. And he said, well, I might join you. Whereabouts? He said, out by the old crash site. And so I further asked, well, what old crash site? And they told me about the story from the late '40s, early '50s. They couldn't remember when, but it was a an old story in the town of Aztec that they had a flying saucer incident. And so I became very intrigued and looked into it. And the more I looked into it, there was a little more to it. Right. <laughs> we are coming up on twenty, twenty-seven, twenty-eight years later, and you know we we finally put a book out a year ago called "The Aztec Incident: Recovery at Hard Canyon." Mm-hmm.
1: Now, uh, a lot of this, you know, Scully's main informant was uh, a man named Silas Newton, and I don't want to spend too much time on this just because it's important, of course, but uh, there's so much to it that we could take the whole time just talking about that, where I want to focus on some of uh, the great research that you found, um, regardless of Newton. Uh, showing that something may have happened. So the point is is that Silas Newton, a lot of uh, the criticism for this case has come down to his credibility and uh, his credibility possibly being shot and that he may have m- made all of this up. Uh, but regardless of Newton, you have found other witnesses and things like that. Uh, but however, I do want to throw out, uh, because I want to hear your perspective on this, My one cri- my major criticism... <laughs> of, and uh, to get this out of the way, is that uh Silas Newton, I think it is safe to say, and we'll hear your opinion uh that he was a con man in that uh even in the f b i files, if you go to the vault, you'll see that prior to nineteen fifty two he had several charges, some for um and some indictments on conspiracy and fraud and and things like this. And then even after 1952, I think you make a good argument. You call into question that maybe these charges in 1952 are unwarranted and unfair. But even after that, there are more fraud and uh, larceny type charges uh, after that. So, would you say that? Would you say? Would you agree he was a con man, or do you think that? Uh, do you have a different
0: perspective? Yeah, I've got a little different perspective. I'm not going to defend. It. <laughs> He he was definitely a creative business person. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, I, I'm not going to defend some of the things he did uh, in any way, but I will remind you that some of his pyramid schemes in the oil field are still done today by legitimate companies. Mm-hmm. Um, now he took a lot of heat for that. Well, there were no rules back then, and there are new. No, well, there are rules today, but they're a little more defined than they uh, were back then. Uh When I look at a con, you know it's the the old story of separation of a man uh, from his money. If if you're going to be con, somebody's going to try to get in your wallet for something. When you look at this whole Aztec story, as he related to Frank Scully, there was no money for he to be made uh, in this. So I'm, I'm looking for if this is a con. Where was he going to make the money? And there is, not, even the FBI say that, well, you know, why the, the weaving of the story? Because this doesn't fit, basically. I'm putting words in their mouth, but this doesn't fit his normal pattern of trying to put a business deal together. hmm.
1: So, and I think that um, this gets back to what you got in trouble for. And I did want to ask that these other charges you didn't really cover in the book. And uh, I was wondering what your rationale behind, you know, uh, not addressing that was.
0: Well, it's easy. It's like I said in the email to you. When you go to the FBI vault today, you get a very sterilized copy of Newton's record uh we got them years ago when they would give you 200 i think it was 289 documents and today you're going to get maybe 80 90 mm-hmm. and they're much more redacted today than they were back uh, early 2000 whatever time frame um so when i look at the when i look at the the whole documents and read them and i've read them dozens of times backward and forward I don't – when you're saying charges, you're hitting a key point. He was charged with a lot of business dealings. He was only convicted of one, and that was a slap on the hand and a fine. That was the securities exchange violation that right after the Depression, we we formulated what we call today the Securities Exchange Commission. Back then, uh, trading of companies and buying and selling a stock was wide open. So when I look at the allegations, and the FBI had a file on him all the way to the day he died. hmm
1: And he and, was charged their, with. Um, what the? He was charged with with fraud, right? Like in the last when he's like in his 80s.
0: Or at least. Uh, late 70s. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it, were you talking about the his little silver mine operation he right, had up right, in right. Uh, Colorado? right, right. Yeah, he was selling stock in a mine that the stock shares exceeded the value of the assets. Uh, we had that going on right now on Wall Street, by the way.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Although
0: we had that going, we, we had that going on in the '80s. It was called dot-com companies. Right. But uh, at the same time, when he when he sold Frank Scully on the idea that you have to sit down with these scientists and talk, the man by the FBI's records was worth twenty-five million dollars. That's right. back in nineteen fifty. So, like I said, I'm not going to defend his uh, business ethics, but let's understand them and really look at him, and not paint it with a, a wide brush and just say, oh, well, look, the FBI was talking about securities and exchange fraud. Therefore, he must be a crook. Well, I, I think that's too wide of a brush.
1: Yeah, I – now, I would – Disagree on that point in that, I mean, uh, just because if you read the files, he did a lot of shady stuff that I don't think is justified, and you said you're not going to defend him. However, you make a good point in that you brought up uh, looking, taking a closer look at what he got in trouble for in regards to uh, this case that we're talking about with his Aztec and Scully, and I think you bring Mm -hmm. up a lot of good uh, points and you demonstrate some evidence that um, that Newton, if this was some sort of hoax, which it might not have been, uh, you make arguments that way, but even if it was, there is evidence in that letters you found that he wrote to Scully that at the very... He might have been, maybe, at the best, a victim of this hoax because he genuinely <laughs> felt that what he was doing was real. And I just want to... So, people know, he was essentially saying that he created this doodle bug that could find oil and minerals, and he was using this extraterrestrial technology that he got from scientists who uh, worked with the Air Force with these um, recovery of these UFOs, these crash saucers, and things. And so, the FBI said, No, that we have evidence that that is false, that there were no alien technologies, so you're lying, so this is a fraud. Um, but mm-hmm. he really genuinely felt, at least you showed in these letters, that uh, this was alien technology.
0: I and I think Silas Newton felt that the story he was preaching to Scully and others was absolutely true.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I think he believed it, right. and and I think as we show in the book that there was an incident. And you go back to the doodle bug, the doodle bug that they showed in court by. Everybody's agreement, except the FBI, was not the doodlebug he was passing around to investors. So mm-hmm. the question now is, where was Newton's doodlebuggy? That the doodlebug device. Mm-hmm. When they when the FBI comes in, read. I, if you don't have the the uh, information, I'll send it to you um, on he and Gabe Bauer. That was one question. Okay, the FBI is prating around the courtroom with a doodlebug machine. It's not the one I was trying to sell. Where's mine? Mm-hmm. And I think we, as we get critical on Aztec, we overlook these details. When you add them all up, it's a lot of details.
1: Well, and I want to get into these letters because that was something new that you had found. Um, first, how you mm-hmm. found uh, these letters and then what these letters said and like the, the years that these letters span. So, for instance... When was the last letter you had found that Newton had written where he still, when he didn't need to, was still holding to, I believe, that this was really E.T. technology?
0: I don't have the letters in front of me, and I only put a sample in the book to, uh-huh. to show the, the time frame span. But for anybody that would like to look at the letters, it's at the University of Wyoming in mm-hmm. Laramie, Wyoming, uh, Alice Scully in the late 80s, donated uh, a huge, huge collection of everything that she accumulated from her late husband. And just about every when I say just about, three-quarters of the books that he's ever, ever wrote, which he you know, wrote a lot of books, are there as far as correspondence, uh, memorabilia from his political campaigns. He was a staunch... Uh, democrat in california and ran for a couple of different local seats uh which is funny because silas newton was an ultra right-wing conservative and they were best friends and matter of fact newton actually contributed to his uh, to his political campaign i always thought that was kind of funny um but anybody that wants to take the time they're wonderful people to work with at the university of wyoming you book an appointment you go in they pull out the collection you can spend like mike price and i did about five days
1: Mm-hmm.
0: There's, th- there's just, just to give you an idea, I'm looking at the catalog number right here There's 33,000 plus documents in that collection wow.
1: But I mean, uh, an easier way to do it is actually to get your book Because you cover a lot of that in the book But you demonstrate the argument that throughout his life he maintained That uh, he yes. believed this uh, all to be the case, all to be true
0: well, and also let's jump over to Frank Scully quickly uh in talking to his family members. I wanted to know who dr G was because we we can speculate all day long uh, Frank Scully would not even tell his family on the de- de- on his deathbed who dr G was
1: mm-hmm.
0: as a journalist, he kept that to himself to the day he died
1: mhm, and just so the audience know Dr. G was essentially uh the the scientist who allegedly worked with these uh crashed craft who gave this information to Newton and helped him design the doodle bug and Scully said he talked to this these scientists that it wasn't Dr. G who is one person in his book, but it at this one person actually represents several scientists. That's correct. And then yeah. in your book you go into looking into who these scientists might have been, which is really interesting. And then you also demonstrate, and I guess uh, we'll talk about Khan before we move to the witnesses, is uh, that the one article that came out that kind of debunked everything and uh, that actually everybody kind of picked up and, and kind of blew off Aztec from, even today researchers do this, is this article in True, uh, written by Kahn, but uh, you show how Kahn actually was motivated by um, being upset that he wasn't able to get this story in the first place.
0: Yeah, there were there were a couple people that tried to buy the story. Uh, Purdy, Ken Purdy was one, and uh, J.P. Kahn kind of oversold himself a little bit to the management at the San Francisco Chronicle, saying that he could he could get Scully to turn the story over. Both have two different versions of how that took place. And reading the letters back and forth, it's quite comical. Scully claims that uh, he was offered a pittance for him and had already cut his deal with the Henry Hoyton Company, the publishing company. And Conn says, well, we offered him $25,000 for the story. And uh, they they really never did agree on which which was the right version. I went out in the... Uh, well, oh, about two thousand and five or six and interviewed uh well, I interviewed the key person that was JP Kahn's best friend and then we went to lunch and, and met some other people. But uh Bob McClay was, was uh JP Kahn's probably only friend to the day he died and then Bob actually uh, disposed of his estate as well as uh unfortunately. Uh, a lot of uh, records and letters also back and forth, and we think the rebuttal, the book that rebuttaled Frank Scully's book, Behind the Flying Saucers, the manuscript was probably pitched in the garbage can at that time. I, I have the original artwork for the cover of the book, but that's uh, neither here nor there. I would have loved to have read his rebuttal. But that J.P. Kahn's anger that he couldn't cut a deal with Scully... Then he did a 180 and turned around and just tried to poison the whole Aztec story.
1: hmm And it worked. And did pretty a great well. job, by the way. Right. Oh, he
0: did a great job. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And now you're having to go through and devote all these chapters to this just to get past that uh, trouble.
0: Well, that exactly. There's some. There's some people out there you'll you'll never convince to look at the case. I'm not asking people to. Change their mind on the case. I'm saying look at the facts. You know, look at the documents. Look at the facts. When you do, there's a whole, you could make a lot more arguments on other UFO cases or flying saucer cases than you could on Aztec once you look. And the book is 220 some pages. There's 55,000 documents, over 55,000 documents that we have in our files that are supporting evidence in some way, fashion, or another that this was a lot bigger than people thought.
1: Right. Well, an example is, uh, you know, I've read Ryan Wood's book on UFO crashes, and a lot of those have to do with maybe rumors or an article in a newspaper or something like that, whereas you've got, which a lot of cases don't have, uh, several witnesses. So let's move on to that, including a couple of eyewitness, uh, eyewitnesses who were there uh, firsthand. Mm-hmm. So uh, I know one of them, I think, was, were both of them found by Steinman uh, earlier or was, uh, did you, were you able to uncover one yourself?
0: Um, The
1: The first-hand witnesses?
0: Yeah, Doug Nolan was uh, contacted Bill Steinman after uh, uh, Steinman's book came out. Uh Uh-huh. And, you know, we're getting that now, too. I, I was, As you and I were talking on the phone the other day, I, Suzanne and I were out in Aztec for two weeks. We gave two lectures, one at the Aztec Library, one at the Farmington Library. And, and in both instances, we had people approach us afterwards saying, we need to talk. And mm-hmm. uh, we now I know what Bill Steinman's going through. But, yeah, when Steinman's book came out, he was contacted by a very successful business person, by the name of Doug Nolan. Doug had lived in Mancos, Colorado, which is a town just north and west of Aztec, right over the border, and had come down to Aztec to work in the oil fields in 1948 and was one of the first people on the mesa at 19 years of age the morning that they discovered this 100-foot, basically lenticular craft, as Doug described it. And he contacted Steinman year I I didn't even know Frank Scully's book existed or Bill Steinman's till years into my research. Wow. Uh, and it was when I did find out about it of course Frank Scully was long dead but Bill Steinman was still around that's before he kind of went into a retirement and really has nothing to do with the subject matter anymore. But I uh, contacted Bill and as I uh, explained in the book he basically told me go get your feet wet and go do your own research. Come back to me in a few years. If you If you can show me you've done that, then you have an interest and I'll, I'll share some other things with you. And he kept his word. I called him a couple of years later and told him what I had uncovered. And then he gave me the whole uh, Doug Nolan uh, story. And then of course, Doug was alive. So I called Doug and interviewed him for a couple hours and, uh, and what was and, uh, Doug's uh, story? Doug's story was he had just joined the El Paso Oil Company at 19 years of age and was going over to Bill Ferguson's house right around 5 o'clock in the morning. They were going down to Bloomfield and then Blanco to check on a couple of oil uh, pump rigs they had. And when he got to uh, Bill Ferguson's house, Ferguson said, hey, our day is going to change. We have a bad brush fire out on Hart Canyon Road near one of the drip tanks. And uh, so when they got out there, a, a brush fire near drip tanks is all the ingredients for a disaster. When they got out there, the other El Paso oil field workers that had been dispatched um, approached Bill and Doug and said, hey, hey, calm down. Everything's fine. The brush fire is up on top of the mesa, not near the tanks. But we went up there, and what's laying up there is unbelievable. You have to come up and see it for yourself. So when they get to the top of the Mesa, what we call the crash site today, the cover of our book is an aerial view of it with the flying saucer superimposed. Uh, here lays this big lenticular disc on top of the Mesa. And you know, Doug goes on to talk about you know, the fact that the thing was basically in perfect shape. He couldn't see a flaw on it and uh, his immediate impression was it was one of our military aircraft and so it became a rescue mission at that point let's try to get inside and see if everybody's okay or if anybody's hurt or whatever and uh in, in the interest of time on the on the show uh the, the whole story unravels from there and uh it was pretty interesting they they did view some small humanoid type bodies in the craft and uh Doug did a just short of a three-hour taped audio interview uh, for a friend, and before he died, and we have that. And he goes into much much greater detail. People, other people that were at the crash site that day and whatnot. Mm-hmm. More details than we actually put in the book because we are still checking on some of the the claims that he made. Uh, Ken Farley was another witness that uh, we found. He had. Uh, Never lived in the area. He was in Durango visiting an aunt driving en route to uh, San Diego with a friend to see some old uh, buddies from the Navy. And his friend stayed south of Durango in the town of Cedar Hill, and Ken was swinging by Cedar Hill to pick up his friend that morning to proceed on to san diego and his his buddy told him wow i don't know what's going out on, on that road but there's all kind of equipment going out there including uh, a police car and a bunch of oil field uh, oil field uh, worker trucks let's try to see if we can help and they went out and you know again doug's or ken farley's not from the area doesn't know anybody and years later we find him in bat cave arizona retired and he tells a story that if you line it up with Ken, uh, I'm sorry, Doug Nolan's story, it's hand in hand. And they're not two old friends that knew each other. There's completely independent interviews from two completely separate people.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And they're saying the same thing. What were some of the points, for example, that uh, they each pointed out that were were right on?
0: Size and shape of the craft, the color of the craft. It was brushed aluminum, pewter in appearance. Uh, both told about three gold rings that ran around the the uh, center rim that would look completely out of place they couldn't understand what that was uh no no visible seams rivets screws uh no monococking like you'd have on an aircraft uh, the you know the aluminum skin monocoque uh only under very close examination they could see what we would call mirrored sunglass type portholes on the craft and uh the angle of where it was laying where they were standing i went back and asked doug okay where were you where was everybody else they both told about an elderly couple ranchers husband and wife team that were there they both talk about two police officers that were there and uh the story If these were two old retired guys in the town of Aztec, I'd say, well, you know, Alejandro, they met too many days for coffee in this story. They conjured up the story. But two young guys from two completely different parts of the country, and they're telling the same story.
1: Mm -hmm. That's pretty interesting. I mean, that's, uh, I think, very compelling. And then you also have some compelling secondhand witnesses. Mm -hmm. I I really like the story of what there's like a, a... A preacher or a priest of some sort? I forget his exact
0: title. Uh, He's he's a Baptist minister, Mm a Baptist preacher from Mancos, the town that uh, Doug Nolan was from. And uh, he came across the uh, crash site. He had just been uh, relocated there from basically an area near Roswell, New Mexico, ironically. (laughs) And... uh, uh, he was living in a rented house in Aztec and commuting, basically, a, a four-state area, for the uh, Baptist American Baptist Church, and they had not he but they some people had just reopened the Baptist Church in Mancos. So part of his responsibilities was acting as the every other weekend preacher there and uh, overall calling on all the Baptist churches up in that that area. And he had a pretty good territory. I mean, some weeks he would drive 350 miles. And he came up from the crash site, again, very similar to the gentleman traveling with Ken Farley that said, there's a lot of activity out there. Let's see what's going on. For people listening, it's hard to comprehend. But Highway 550 running out of Aztec up to Durango, uh, once you leave Aztec, the next little town you'll hit is Cedar Hill, which doesn't even have a traffic light. It's a church of an old general store and a few homes, the next thing you'll hit basically is Durango, Colorado. Hard Canyon Road runs off going east to west. It runs east off of Highway 550. It's in a basin area. It's in a low-lying land at the base of some very big canyons. And so when you have activity out there, it's easy to see. And uh, Solon, Lemmy, Brown who was the preacher's name. Uh, talked about seeing activity. Got in behind a police car. Got out to the scene, th- thinking it was a disaster in the oil fields, which they had a lot back then. Uh, they said, "No, we, you know, there's another situation going on out here." And basically, when the military arrived, everybody was separated, and Mr. Brown was asked by the military, not knowing what man of the cloth he was if he could do basically at last last rites. And he explained to him, well, I'm Baptist. We don't do last rites, but we can have a prayer for these dead bodies. He came back to Manco's and repeated that story to uh, the Sayer family, and it was the Sayer's son who contacted me and told me about this. So, you know, we have a a real mix of people that were at the crash site that day. Mm
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then uh, we could touch on the other, you have, uh, let's see, at least one or two other secondhand witnesses, is that correct?
0: We do. We have uh, some ranchers uh, that uh, work for some of the people uh, that were at the crash site. We also, the, the one that intrigues me the most are the two police officers. One was uh, Manuel Sandoval from the town of Cuba, which is really about 90, 93 miles from Aztec. And another police officer that I think we're getting closer and closer to identify uh, that was at the crash site that day. Uh, Manuel Sandoval would have come from the town of Cuba and his story, and I got it secondhand because he was long gone before I could get to him, his story from his best friends in Cuba was that he had been seeing flying saucers for weeks leading up to the March 25th date. And he and another highway patrolman, Andy Andrews, uh, would meet for coffee and exchange flying saucer stories. And one night, uh, March 25th, 1948, Manuel decided, I've had it. Uh, I want to find out where this thing's coming from or where it's going. So he literally chased it in the car sometimes losing it for 15, 20 minutes, and then other times it's wide open country, He it would reappear. And he told his friends that it always seemed like it was in trouble. It couldn't gain altitude. It wobbled like a leaf, to use his words. And he followed it up through what we call Largo Canyon and lost it and then saw it again, what he thought was going down. And that's the the area in Hart Canyon, as we know today as the crash site. And he stuck to that story till the day he died as well. Mm -hmm. The other police officer that was there could have have been either Highway Patrol, uh, Andy Andrews. We have constables for the town of Aztec, the Aztec's own police force. And, of course, we had San Juan County. All were very active patrolling the roads at that time. And we've kind of singled out who would have been there in that time frame in 1948 and to the best records that we can find who was on duty that night. But it still it still shakes out to four or five people. I think we're getting closer to figure out who the other police officer was. Mm-hmm. And we are, in fact, talking with family members that are helping us.
1: Right. So, getting into some of the physical evidence, I mean, some of the, uh, it's still circumstantial type of stuff, and you note that in the book, but you're at least able to, I think, make some great strides. Uh, for example, uh, in the Scully book, they talked about these radars and uh, radar mm-hmm. having to do in the area having to do with the crash, and you were able to uncover that there really were some radar bases out there that have since been deserted.
0: Yeah, it, they talk about uh, radar bases, and there were three. There was Continental Divide, there was Elvado, and there was Moriarty. In order, uh, the Continental Divide, and Moriarty, were not built till '50, and, and Moriarty wasn't even complete till '51. So we spent a lot of time down at Maxwell Air Force Base, going through the archives. Actually. Other researchers prior to me had asked the Air Force, and the Air Force said there were no radar bases in that area. I went down to Maxwell in Montgomery, Alabama, spent an entire week there, got there Sunday night, left to return to Charlotte Saturday morning, gave it five full days, eight to four, and on the second or third day, we actually found them. And it wasn't because the Air Force was denying their existence. It's because they had been misfiled under the Atomic Energy Commission, Hmm. which commissioned the construction of the radar bases. They were then turned over to the Air Force until 1957, when they were closed and replaced with what we call two-line radar. Um, The... Alvado one is the interesting one, and, and if, if your listening audience is saying, "Why would the Atomic Energy Commission build these?" They were built to protect Los Alamos and Sandia National Laboratories, part of the Manhattan Project. Uh, as a matter of fact, they were staffed with uh, civilian Atomic Energy Commission people, uh, Air Force, and Navy at that time. They were also experimenting with some very high powerful radar for the Navy. But the only one that would have been operational was the Elvado base in 1948. It was the early construction on it. began in '46, and it went, actually went under the name of the Los Alamos radar installation. Years later, it was changed to the Tia Maria, and then later to Elvado, which is a man-made lake uh, right near the, uh, the facility. So, yeah, we when people are talking about radar and early research, the Air Force is saying, well, that's that's a great story. It's a good campfire story, but there was no radar. There was, in fact, radar.
1: Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that took you years of work to discover all of these places.
0: Um, I had some help. Andy Kistner, who was a state rep, uh, for New Mexico, he jumped in and helped me, and it didn't really take years, but it was a lot of, a lot of archival research to get when they were built. Uh, there was confusion with Elvado because it had a start date of 1950. Uh, that's the case; it had nothing to do with Aztec. We need something in 48. Well, then we found the original uh, construction it started in 46. And it was actually down at Elvado, Like, it wasn't even where the Elvado uh, El final uh, installation is today. They were about nine miles apart. But, yeah, it was a lot of sorting through records. And the United States government does keep some very impeccable records. It's just knowing how to get them and where to go and how to decipher them.
1: Mm-hmm. So another thing that you found was uh, at the site where uh, you believe the... Crash took place um you found a concrete slab, which of course mm-hmm. uh, doesn't prove anything, but one of the things that's interesting is you have not been able to find out who or why that that thing's there.
0: That's exactly right, and again, we found out about it interviewing a gentleman that was with the air force in forty eight He talked about if you're if you think you're at the right site, look for some concrete footers. He was plural more than one, uh, because he said they had to uh, cast some concrete footers to help with one of the crane pad supports. And so my dear friend Randy Barnes, who at the time lived in Aztec, went out with a, a piece of rebar and started probing the silty sand out near the crash site and what we call the military road, we've nicknamed it, that was carved in to get equipment in, which, by the way, doesn't appear on any maps for any reason. Uh, he called me that afternoon excited and said, hey, I found it. It's about a meter square. It's about nine inches thick, and uh, it's there. Uh, he said there is a footer at the end of the road.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <clears throat> and, and to your point, nobody has – we've had every skeptic and every debunker say, well, well, it's an oil field cap. Well, you don't put those on top of a mesa. And we drilled through to take a core sample, and had it been an oil field Oil well cap. We would have blown ourselves to
1: <laughs> right. I mean, uh, that part's pretty funny. And I would imagine, though, that you were pretty confident that that's not what it was uh, prior to drilling.
0: Well, we were. We we had experts from the oil companies tell us that we don't we have no, we don't have a clue what it is. Mm-hmm. And the drilling company that came out to do a core sample has been doing it for thirty eight years. At the time, that was ten years ago. And they looked at it and said, it's not a well cap. And if it was a well cap, we sure as heck wouldn't be drilling a hole through it. So if you want a core sample, we'll drill through it. Uh-huh. We've been to the Bureau of Land Management, asked them what what what's with the road, what's with the concrete slab. I've taken people from the Bureau of Land Management to the crash site. Bill Pappage is one. He'll be listening to your show. Uh, nobody can explain why on top of a mesa in the middle of nowhere is a concrete slab.
1: hmm Right, and uh, I think that's what's impressive too. It's just with each of these, you know, we're hitting them as bullet points, but you've spent so much time looking into each of these little details in the background and what, like the slab, who might have had it, and pursuing a bunch of agencies to figure that out. Um, I think that's what's really the most compelling about uh, everything in the book.
0: Well, thank you. Mm-hmm. We worked hard on it. Like I say, it was a, a lot of a lot of hard work by a lot of people.
1: Mm-hmm. I guess uh, finally, what to you do you feel uh, is the most compelling uh, information that you ran across putting this together thus far?
0: God, Alejandro, that's tough to say. Um, I, I think it's all the pieces of the puzzle.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Uh huh. Uh. I don't know if there's any one single thing. This, well, I, I, you know, we 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 started this whole dialogue over the the FBI documents that were floating around real heavy a month ago that people confuse with Roswell, and they're in fact relating to Aztec. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting, and I don't know if you had time to read all the documents in the book, uh, like the sting operation at the Melwin Hotel in downtown Denver. The United States Air Force, the Army, the FBI—they set up a sting operation to buy black and white photos of the Aztec flying saucer. Mm-hmm. Their words, not ours. And uh, in fact, that uh, the people, some of the people who they mention in their reporters didn't exist, such as Mr. Klein from the Baltimore Sun Times. So it just—it starts more questions than it does answers. Now, you know, who is this Klein guy from Baltimore doing in Denver trying to buy flying saucer photos for the newspaper?
1: Mm-hmm. That's a really good point, and I'm glad you brought that up because you were able to demonstrate in the book how uh, the – and uh, some people may not know this, the way the Scully book starts, and you cover this, is Newton actually did a talk at the University of Denver um ...about all of this, and it hit the news out there, and it was a big deal, and the Air Force came out, and they're all coming out trying to find out who was this guy that talked, there were all these rumors about who he was, and you demonstrate here even further that it was a big deal, and I think people don't realize that during this time, the Air Force was very, very, very active in uh, looking at UFO cases, and uh, an interesting thing you have in here is where they go to a radio station... and you've got the transcript of the Air Force interviewing uh, a guy at the radio station about all of this to find out what he knows, and they're kind of cagey in that. They're like, we know you know more, and he's like, no, I don't know nothing.
0: Uh, (laughs) The George Kohler uh, uh, interview, George Kohler and the Air Force Boys is the title of that chapter, right? mm -hmm. We actually have the uh, tape, by the way. Right. My wife transcribed it for the book, but we actually have the audio tape that we took from a wire feed and put it on a on a um, CD.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting if you to hear the emotion. Up. Right, because it looks like there were some tense moments in that conversation.
0: There were. There were some very tense moments. Mm-hmm. Uh, temper's flared, and then cooler heads prevailed. Uh, both Hansen and Unger, with the Air Force OSI, I think they were at a Lackland Air Force Base outside of Denver. They—they're um, both deceased now. I did talk to the one son, and he was shocked, absolutely shocked that that tape existed. Wow! And uh, we—that—that that, we could do a whole show on that conversation. I won't bore mm-hmm. you with it now, but that uh, Scully actually got criticized for mentioning. You know, he mentions that in Behind the Flying Saucers. That that whole interview took place, and that the the, the wire reel was uh, demagnetized, right, destroying right. all evidence. And guess where we found the wire reel?
1: Uh in uh, Frank
0: Frank Scully's archive. Right. So for some reason, and I I I've thought about this from 20 different angles. Mike Price and I, when we found that, were shocked. Here Scully takes all this flack when his book came out from the debunkers of the time that said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You're saying George Kohler was interviewed by two Air Force OSI agents at the radio station, and then the OSI came back and said, wait a minute, we know you just recorded that, hand over the tape, or hand over the, back then, tape. hand over the, the wire uh, reel, and wink-wink to the engineer, and they demagnetized it, handing the Air Force a blank reel. Mm -hmm. When all along, the actual reel was sitting in Frank Scully's desk until 1989, when Alice gave the whole collection. So there was some kind... This is my opinion, what I'm about to say. My opinion, I think Scully was concerned that that tape existed.
1: Hmm.
0: And that's why when he was picked on by people back in... 52 and 53, he didn't say, well, wait a minute, I still have the interview. That would have made him clean in the whole deal. He just shrugged it off and said, well, you know, I'm just telling you what happened.
1: Right. Well, and, you know, one thing, like you you mentioned how our conversation got fired up again about all of this with uh, the FBI documents. Uh, I had uh, Bruce McAbee on just a couple of weeks ago to talk about that, and he also... Uh, demonstrated how the FBI did take all of this a lot more serious uh, than they allude to in their story from just uh, like a month or so ago. And uh, coupled with what you've got in your book, demonstrates just how serious they were taking all of this at the time, which is really interesting. It'd be great if you could post that audio at some point.
0: We have a website. Uh-huh. Uh, where you can also go to buy the book, and the website right. is www.theaztecincident.com. com, mm-hmm. and that's a great idea. I should put, I should have our webmaster post that, uh, or at least part of it, to so people can listen to it. It's rather long; it's about forty minutes long, I believe. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that would be great, at least portions of it. But you've got the transcript right here in your book, also. So, you know, thanks for being on the show. I think we're pretty much out of time, but. Uh, I, I think it's really important for anybody that is interested in UFO crashes to get your book because uh, it demonstrates, like I said, two things, that there's more to the Aztec case than I think people give credit to. And uh, also, I think you demonstrate in here how the right way to thoroughly um, research a lot of these different pieces of evidence that you came across. Well,
0: thank you very much, mhm. Um, I'll pass those words on to Thayer and uh, to Frank Warren and my lovely wife and all the others that worked on it.
1: Exactly. And the work's uh, not done. We sure had
0: fun. No, it's not. Well, actually, I'm going to kind of be fading away right now. (laughs) Um, I'll be 56 this July. I've got a couple of leads to chase down, but I'm I'm going through the Bill Steiman syndrome of, you know, he worked his tail off for years on this case. And there's just a point where you have to say, okay, I, we we got it done to the best that we're going to get. People are dying off left and right. There's hardly anybody left that was a, a witness. They'd be you know, late 80s, early 90s now. But uh, I think I'd like to pass the torch to somebody else.
1: Right. Well, be sure and share, though, I guess, what you've uh, come up with since the book. So maybe do a blog or something. Or you could always write stories right. for us and for our magazine as well.
0: Well, there you
1: go. I'd love to. Okay, great. All
0: right, well, thank you again for having me.
1: Yep, thank you. All right, thank you to Scott. So be sure and check out the website. You can even just kind of Google Aztec UFO or Aztec incident, and you'll find his website there and get the book. I really feel that, you know, when it comes to UFO crashes, not many of them have very much evidence, let alone, you know, of course we hear about Roswell and all those witnesses, but Roswell's totally different than the other alleged UFO crashers. Most of them are just rumor. Um, maybe uh, there's there's a second-hand witness. But Ramsey's done a lot of work here and uh, I think has more evidence for this alleged possible incident than any other UFO crash besides Roswell. So I think it's a book that people need to review, especially if you're into UFO crashes. So check that out. Otherwise, don't forget to go to openminds.tv for the latest on all of the stories we've talked about. Um, And don't forget to pick up the magazine, which should be coming out on the shelves soon. But you can also go to our website and check out our latest issue. We've got a lot of cool stories in there. So you guys have a great week, and uh, we will talk to you next week, people.